today on the Almond Journey podcast. There's a lot of greenwashing out there, but if you have the data and the numbers to back it up, it makes it easier. Because it's the whole industry. If we all make a change, it's going to make a big impact, not only on our environment, but as a marketing tool for us. Mackie Vilich of Capay Farms joins us to talk about data-driven sustainability in almond orchards. the Almond Journey podcast brought to you by the Almond Board of California. It's on this show that we discover how growers, handlers, and other stakeholders are making things work in their operations to drive the almond industry forward. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich, and I get to travel up and down the valley, virtually in this case, to feature the leaders who are finding innovative ways to improve their operations, connect with their local communities, and advance the almond industry. Today, we're headed north to Chico, California, to visit with Mackie Vilich of Capay Farms. In addition to being a part of the ownership team, Mackie is in a unique position as sustainability manager of a 13,000-acre almond and walnut farming operation. The focus on sustainability and the scale of their business has led to Mackie exploring a variety of innovative solutions like solar and cover crops and composting and carbon credits, electric equipment, whole orchard recycling, and more, all of which we get to touch on in today's episode. This interview took place back in December of 2022 at the Almond Conference in Sacramento. And at that time, Mackie was also an MBA student at the Haas Business School at UC Berkeley. She shares about some of her experiences with her MBA classmates and how she optimizes for both farm profitability and sustainability. I think you're really going to appreciate her data-driven, business-minded, sustainability-conscious approach. To start our conversation, I asked Mackie if she'd just describe a little bit more about her role within the family business. I kind of focus on problems that not necessarily are super clear. Uh, So I'm constantly looking at news. I'm constantly looking at issues or conversations about what could we do better in the industry. I'm also pulling information from peers. Uh, So I'm actually at business school at Berkeley. And so I am pulling information every day in class, talking to peers and ideas that I can probably use in the industry for me. So that if that's how we redevelop an orchard, if that's how we look at irrigation management, if that's how we look at electricity and working with PG&E and solar, if that's looking at carbon credits and what resources we can use, cover crops, composting, it's really looking at the whole problem as a farmer and then what can we make these little things even better, even for the environment, but also economically. So how long, I, I know you're part of the, you know, the farm ownership team, how long have you been back full-time on the farm? Uh, for the last five years. So this is kind of an interesting story. So my dad was a money manager in San Francisco and then decided to get out of securities and start buying assets. So in 1987, he bought his first piece of land. It was kidney beans outside of Chico. And it was about 200 acres. And he slowly over the years had been trying to grow his portfolio in assets. And he still works in money management and runs pension funds and private wealth individuals. So he is able to make money on one side, but then he puts his money that he makes into an asset. So it doesn't really fund anything. It's not like these private wealth individuals with the pension funds fund the farm. It's completely ownership by my family, but that is what he did prior. Yeah. For his own personal portfolio, he wanted hard assets. Exactly. He wanted hard assets. So he started growing in the 80s and uh, Dan Cummings, he used to work for us. He was our CEO until recently. He started to focus mostly on his own orchards. 
and we have uh, just started growing. So now we're up to 13,000, which is kind of unbelievable. Um, we really grew in 2000 is when we bought one of our largest pieces of property and really became on the map. And then my older sister, she's a little bit older than me, and we call it first litter, second litter, <laughs> because we have different moms. And she started working for the family business about 20 years ago. And then I just started about five years ago. So, you know, with the sustainability initiatives, what have you found for you seems to really thread that needle between what is, you know, great sustainability wise, but also great, you know, incorporating into the business? Well, my sister, actually, I'll have to give her kudos. She started looking at solar back in 2007. So our, actually our oldest, one of our older ranches that have solar, we have to redo the solar because it, now it's just the technology is so much more advanced. So we're getting like, it's just not as effective as a solar system. So we started looking at solar back in 2007 and we have now over say like 30 sites that have solar and about 3.5 megawatts of solar. Um, 60% of all of our irrigation is on solar, which is pretty amazing. Um, and we found that with PG&E prices just increasing, especially this year, they're just, it's going to be a huge cost. It's one of our largest costs. So if we can mitigate that, it'd be huge. Um, so that's just one aspect of sustainability that we've really been pushing forward. And is most of that energy, most of it is irrigation pumps? Most of it's irrigation pumps. We have one half a megawatt that runs our hauler for walnuts. So it's offsets during the winter months and then during the summer when our hauler is running, it offsets then too. Uh, so that's really, really nice to have. It's just the kind of a gift that keeps on giving from the sun. Um, so there's composting. Uh, we always try to mitigate that by making our orchards do really well with high yields, but it really depends on cost spreading and just keeping the healthy soils up in Northern California, it's clay. And so we're not dealing with the same soils we're doing in Modesto or in Southern California, but we want to make sure we're doing soil sampling and we're creating good, healthy soils for our trees. And then cover crop is something that we've been really exploring. Ourselves, we own about 12,000 hives. And so we actually work really closely with cover crops in our younger orchards because not only does it help the health of the the soil, but it also helps the health of the bees. As soon as the candy gets too big, it's a little harder for us to get into those windrows. Another aspect, uh, I've been really working closely on uh, some water efficiency. So we have radio frequency networks. We have soil moisture probes. We irrigate based on soil type. In Northern California, drip irrigation doesn't make sense for us. We use micros especially because we have frost problems. This year was especially hard on us. Uh, so we work a lot with water efficiencies. We would love to get to the point where we can turn on our phone and just turn it off and on the pumps. That makes a huge difference. So then laboring decreases quite a bit. And then the last thing I've been really focused on is carbon credits and trying to create the first carbon credit for a permanent crop. And they traditionally have been doing cover crop for corn, wheat, soy in the central of the United States. So what they do is, I, I'm just learning about this, but after they take out that crop in the winter, they plant a cover crop. And if they continue to do a practice change, they can actually sell it as a carbon credit. So Granular and Corteva have been using that as the interface to sell their farmers carbon credit to Microsoft and Google um, to offset some of their carbon. Now they're looking at permanent crops and other varieties, uh, not just the row crops, soy, wheat, and big ag in central United States. My argument is that trees actually sequester a lot more carbon, but 
The problem is you need to have a practice change. It's not just because you planted trees 20 years ago doesn't mean that you get to have the carbon credit. The idea is that you're making a practice change. So if you're just starting to put cover crop on your piece of land, if you're starting to put compost on that piece of land, if you're trying to do irrigation practices that are different, or if you change a row, like a silage, an old dairy and use silage and you go into trees, you are literally creating a forest, a manicured forest that can sequester carbon. So looking at those aspects, I've been talking to them, trying to figure out options for us in the almond industry to see what we can do moving forward for us, which is really exciting. That is cool. Yeah. And so is it looking promising or kind of what, what are the, the hurdles to, to making that happen? Well, like I said, the cover crop for us, it's hard to do when you don't have flood irrigation. Like we don't get the same kind of irrigation systems. It's one thing to go really sustainable in water. And then there's another thing for like cover crop health. And then if your canopies are too big, you can't continue this practice. And so that's kind of a difficult thing because they've had their models made just for cover crop in the central United States. So changing that is difficult for a permanent crop. I think they're trying to figure out and test these soils to figure out what carbon sequestration there actually is over time. Another one is whole orchard recycling, another option for cover crop because you're putting that carbon back into the soils. So we're looking at that as an option, but it's very expensive. And Northern California, up where we are, there's no incentives right now. We just buy a permit. It's not a big deal. Which is odd because, yeah, it very directly is putting carbon into the soil. Yeah. So they're exploring all of it. So it's very, very beginning days. And I'm just working with them trying to figure it out. That's cool. What about like electrification of equipment? Is that anything that even worth looking into yet? Yeah, so we've been looking into it. I would love if our solar could charge our tractor. And then the only thing that's a little scary for us is that what if our field hand forgets to plug that tractor in that night or um, during the day when they don't need it? Yes, we would love to have some more electric tractors, trucks. It'd be great. I think we're not quite there as an industry. And I don't think the states of California is quite there to recharge and batteries aren't ready technology-wise. Autonomous vehicles would be really interesting um, because they can be more efficient, more effective. The problem is we want to keep our field workers year-round. We don't really like just to keep people on for harvest and then lay them off. So our biggest issue is making sure that they have something to do during the off-season. If we have autonomous sprayers, what do we do with them during that time? If we only have one guy who's running four sprayers, right? Like the Gus or Blue White. So for us, we're trying to figure out how the best way to work with our staff. I mean. Some of us worked for us for 30 years, 25 years. And so it, it makes a big difference to keep them part of their family. Oh, for sure. And, and you need them. Yes, absolutely. That's great. Boy, you have a lot going on. You know, with the cover crops, uh, you just kind of talked about it a little bit about, you know, the canopy and the irrigation. For you are, you, are you able to make them work in your farm or do you see promise for making them work in the future? Yeah. Well, so we are continuously redeveloping land. So... We've gotten to the point where we redevelop about 500 acres every year and having that kind of cycle of redevelopment and then younger trees coming in, we can constantly putting new fields into cover crop options and we'll probably be doing cover crop for the first four years of the tree's life. And then the canopy gets too big or it's hard to get in between. We're kind of experimenting to see if we do other areas or nearby or if we have a duck pond, we might be just plant some stuff over there. But that is our plan right now is to work with that. And are you finding a lot of incentives for things like cover? I know there's like seeds for bees. I mean, are you, are you finding a lot? Yeah, of we, like we've been be enrolled in seeds and bees for the last two years. Um, there's a healthy soils program. The Natural Resource Department has another stewardship program. 
um, that they have looked into or I'm looking into. They also help with whole orchard recycling. So Healthy Soils helps with whole orchard recycling as well and compost, so application of compost on these soils. So there's a lot of different options and the government has a lot of help, which is great. So we're, you know, trying to work with them to be the most sustainable farm we can. So that that actually kind of opens the door for a question I wanted to ask you, which is you mentioned earlier, like, hey, we got to make sure this works for sustainability purposes, for the soil, for the air, for the environment, but also for the business. And so how do you reconcile those two things? And is it tough at times to say like, hey, cover crops are good, but I don't really know what the business case is for them? Uh, There's always good. I mean, you have to think of things wholly, right? Sometimes you can't quantify something completely. So if it's the health of the soils, if it's the health of the bees, the health of the system in general, it doesn't necessarily have a number on it. So it's kind of hard to quantify some of those things. We're trying. Everyone's trying. But sometimes you just do things just because it's good for the health of your whole farm, right? So that's part of the, that argument, I guess. Not a very b- business school-like answer. but It, it- isn't. <laughs> well, some things are really impossible to quantify right? Loyalty is your employees, the health of your soils. And, you know, we're always constantly looking for amendments, but sometimes just increasing the biodiversity by using cover crops makes that change. So you could quantify it technically for the decrease in inputs you might put into the soil, right? But what, what uh, so more anecdotally, you know, what are you observing that makes you think like, hey, this, this is working? And not necessarily specifically with cover crops, but in general with these initiatives. So we did buy one piece of land from a, 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 friend, a neighbor who had put compost on for years, years. And that orchard is 27 years old and is still yielding really well. And so that's a good indicator. It has great water, um, making sure that those amendments. So, you know, trying to figure out what works best is difficult when there's so many variables in farming and everything keeps changing constantly. So... I have a master's in science, so <laughs> looking at all the methodologies of the science is kind of difficult. But trying new things is really important, and trying new things on different land and different combinations. The problem is we have so many different combinations, right, between rootstock and variety and soil type and amendments. It's just a lot of different combinations, and no one has a silver bullet. <laughs> right, right. Well, no, I, th- I think it's important perspective because, I mean— a lot of times, if somebody was in a, say, a sustainability role at a food company removed from the farm, it might be easy for them to say, here is the prescription, right? Here's exactly what you do. But with you having exposure directly on the farm to so many different acres, you know, you realize that every farm is going to need to be approached, you know, a little bit differently. And I think that's a really valuable perspective to yeah. have on the show. There's one other thing I want to touch on is that there's a concept in benchmarking. So the SEC has passed with this infrastructure bill that they need to have measurement of scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. Now, as a farmer, you are the root of most foods, right? So you can measure your scope one and scope two emissions. That's your electricity bill. That's your diesel bill. That's your how much CO2 you're emitting into the environment. Now, as a food company, so say you're a Cliff Bar or Kellogg and you're buying almonds from us, they need, in their public traded company, they need to actually report the scope three emissions. And the only way for them to do that is to understand what the farmer is creating as an emissions. So I know that there's a lot of um, hesitancy on filling out systems like CASP, the California Almond Sustainability Program, but that's their way of benchmarking our industry, understanding where we are as what our uh, CO2 and scope one and two emissions are so that they can 
move forward with all the improvements that we are with water and uh, electricity and solar and amendments that we can move to a more efficient and more sustainable products so we can compete with the pistachio milks and the oat milks and the all the other industries. And so I think that's really important for us. They just need the data more than less just to get our benchmark there. As a farm myself, I'm doing it on my own individual level uh, just to help us with marketing. So with our handlers that they can be like, hey, we know exactly what their scope one and two emissions are. This might help you sell your product better. Um, so that's a, a thing that's really important is getting that data now. Okay. A lot of questions with that. What are you using to collect and organize that data? Is there a software that works for that? Well, actually, QuickBooks has now created a software. Um, there are companies that will come and help you work on that. But literally tracking your PG&E bills is one way. Um, another way is, you know, seeing how much you fill up your diesel, your trucks. Like we track that with our bills. And then also looking at your inputs. So fertilizer is a huge um, CO2 emitter. So looking at that. And there's a, a cool farming tool, which is a website that helps you calculate your GHG. Uh, and that's a really good resource as well. So once you get some of those numbers, you can input them and make changes to your farming practices. And you can measure over time. So I've started to like measure over time and see what our inputs are and our uh, impact. Wow. And so, you know, over the long term, the idea is, is to watch that sort of trend lower your emissions. Exactly. You know? And then... Hopefully that will help us with our handlers and marketing long term. Mm -hmm. But do you have a way of benchmarking yourself? Because I would imagine it's not common for farms to be uh, tracking or sharing this information. So we can only I can only do it for when I started. So in 2020 is my benchmark from now on. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if I wonder if maybe we'll see at some point, you know, sort of like a a collaboration between farms of a certain scale that are all looking at this to say, like, how are you doing? What are you doing? And try to. You know, obviously there's going to be a lot of variables that are different from farm to farm, but I wonder if there's, I, I would think that would be helpful. Yeah, for sure. Well, larger farms is probably easier for them to track. That's why I think it's kind of interesting that Blue Diamond's working with CAST so closely to try to get those numbers. Um, it's great that they're creating incentive because it is great. It's, everyone will start filling those those numbers out so that the industry kind of has like an idea. And that's why Blue Diamond needs it. Like figure out what their scope one and two emissions are so they can write it on their ESC like K-1s. and <laughs> So it's it's important to just have an idea. But yeah, that's it. I think measurement is the very first step for sustainability in our industry. No, I think so too. And I think even beyond, you know, the food companies needing it, whoever has the data kind of owns the narrative or will be able to own the narrative in the future, right? It's a lot of greenwashing out there. <laughs> so it's been really difficult, especially for marketing uh, and food industries to get through that. But if you have the data and the numbers to back it up, it makes it easier. Yeah. No, it makes total sense. Well, let's switch gears abruptly again and talk about whole orchard recycling. Like what have been your experiences with it so far? So we have experimented a little bit with that. Um, we have not done a whole lot yet. We're starting to maybe look at some walnut orchards that we want to take out and get some funding for it. Um, unfortunately, in Northern California, where we are in Butte and Glen, Tehama counties, there's no incentives, unlike the San Joaquin Valley. But I have looked at some of our practices. So traditionally, we root pick. Um, so when we take an orchard, we root pick. It's very traditional up in Northern California because we have a lot of fungus. And we have decided not to do that anymore. So we don't root pick, which has eliminated a huge cost uh, for us, about $480 an acre. And what were you seeing that made you think you didn't need to do that anymore? So we talked to some uh, people who did do whole orchard recycling. And they said, no, try not 
And so we tried for 230 acres and it's turned out great. We started replanting and it's been great. We did a cover crop. So we didn't do a root pick. We did a cover crop. And then uh, now we're about to plant there. So it's, the soil looks great and saved us a lot of money. So that's one small step towards that. But I am excited to experiment and try more acreage and do a whole tree. Some of the ideas that uh, my sister and I have been working on is maybe working with that biomass, either making a biochar or biofuels. Oh, okay. So I know in uh, rice holes, they did a biofuels plant just north of here. So also looking at our biomass, like we're producing a huge amount of biomass if we're taking out orchards at 500 acres every year, right? So that and looking at our holes or almond shells or almond waste, as well as limbs, you know, from right now when we do pruning and also for walnuts. So looking at all of that and what can we use? What can we do with that? Because it doesn't make sense to burn. So in the biofuel space, which is really interesting, is that there's a big fight between ethanol using corn so because farmland is decreasing in the United States quite a bit because towns and cities and suburbs are getting larger and larger, the food is going to become more and more scarce. This is not just in the state of California. This is all over. And there's a battle between what we should have as food for corn and if we should have it for biofuels, right? So now there's this tension between the two because there used to be excess corn, but now with farmland decreasing. Uh, so we have to use the things that we don't eat. <laughs> so woody biomass is a perfect substitute for that. I know there's a plant they're looking at doing sugar beets down in San Diego area. So in turning that into a biofuels as well, there's a huge demand. Uh, San Francisco and LA have about 30% of their SAF, which is sustainable aviation fuels. They try to buy as much as possible because they're trying to work towards these, like United Airlines are working towards these goals. Um, so looking at some of those options is really important for us to move forward in the industry and look at other revenue sources. I mean, we already grow these trees, so why not use them just, just not just for almonds, but also as byproducts? Okay. So yeah, so it may be a combination of that or orchard recycling, kind of a both. Both. Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. I know. I really, I really enjoy working for my family business and kind of being on the forefront of all this stuff, yeah. which is exciting. So what are the biggest questions you get from your peers at Berkeley? So that's the first part. And the second part is, what do you wish more of your peers in business school knew about agriculture? Oh my gosh. Okay. So let me just start. I am the only grower in my class. There is one guy who does wine processing in my class. That's it. So for them, they didn't even know that almonds came from trees. Oh, wow. Well, that's um, a good starting point. <laughs> so it's explaining that is a, a big thing. I'm actually working on a strategy project right now, just explaining the whole supply chain. So like it comes from a tree, goes to a hauler, and then it goes to a handler, and the handler goes to a processor, and then it goes abroad. Like I'm literally describing how these things get to your table and how they get the product. Um, and a lot of them don't understand it and they don't understand what inputs go into it, which is super interesting. I, I mean, I came from a completely different background. So I also learned the last five years a lot of this stuff. Um, I always kind of knew it in the background because my family talked about it. But it's the amount of effort to put into one almond is kind of unbelievable. And I don't think a lot of people know what goes into food and how much thought goes into it between the labor and water and the inputs and the energy. So, and the transportation, I mean, it's amazing. Uh, so they're always shocked, um, which is really cool for, the, for me to explain to them because our food systems are really essential and making sure that they're well-oiled machine is really good. I mean, we even noticed during COVID that our food systems weren't working well, right? You go into the grocery store and you didn't have eggs. How is that even possible in the United States? 
chickens lay eggs. They don't stop laying eggs during COVID. Our food systems aren't, they're not perfect. And we constantly need to be working on that. Um, and so it is important that we continue to keep working on it. So that's one thing that I know Haas students are constantly asking me about is our food systems and how do we make it better. All right. Well, so short of uh, being on this podcast, how else can we make sure that you being on the leading edge of all this stuff of what sustainability looks like on the farm level, how do we get this information out to, to others who aren't in a position to hire someone like yourself to manage it on their own farm? Well, hopefully CAS will help a lot in the Almond Board. Um, that's part of their initiatives. Um, and then also, you know, talking for the Natural Resource Department near your local county, Healthy Soils, some of those programs are great. Uh, there's a lot of grant writers that will help you out. SWEEP is another great grant option. I think just going to these almond conferences and talking to people, that's really impactful. And because my family is one of the larger growers in Northern California, I'm hoping that I'm kind of creating these standards that other growers can come and see that it is possible to do. And you can always find us on our website. My email's there. So I'm happy to talk and help anyway, because it's the whole industry. If we all make a change, it's going to make a big impact, not only on our environment, but as a marketing tool for us. What a great way to bring that interview to a close. Thank you very much to Mackie Vilich for being on the show today. Uh, she encouraged any grower interested in these practices to reach out if they have questions. And you can find her contact information on the Capay Farms website, which we will link to in the show notes. She also did a great job of explaining the importance of CASP, which has recently evolved. And that's the focus of today's ABC update. The California Almond Stewardship Platform, or CASP, is a very important education and marketing tool for the almond industry to tell its stewardship story to consumers. Now over a decade old, it's going through a major update to be even easier to use for growers and more effective for handlers. Almond Board Senior Manager of Field Outreach and Education Tom Duvall sat down with Industry Communications Senior Specialist Taylor Hillman to discuss these changes. Here's Tom. When CAST was first envisioned, it was predominantly an education tool. But over time, there's been a lot more pressure from the market. How are you growing your crops? Are you exhibiting good stewardship? Are you using current practices? So for the handler, they're the ones that get faced with those questions. The growers aren't selling the crop directly to the buyer. It's their handler that's doing it on their behalf. So they're the ones being hit with those questions. So it really does help them by completing your grower self-assessment, you're assisting your handler in marketing your product. Our growers that uh, have that relationship with their handlers, they can share that data. It's aggregate data. It's secure still. Nobody can see your data. They just get an aggregate of practices their group of growers use. And it's evolved, and now there's more pressure and more interest in using it to demonstrate our stewardship practices in the field. So. It was really time to restructure a little bit, and it was a big time to put it on a diet. It had gotten a bit heavy, and it was taking growers a lot of time to do. It was a big commitment. So last spring, we started looking at it, and the board asked if we could see how we could improve it, streamline it a bit, and make it so it meets today's needs better. Very good. So it also went through a little bit of a name change. It is now the California Almond Stewardship Platform, which is what CASP stands for. It's comprised of research, grower education, almond-based tools, and uh, data. There is an assessment in there. The CASP reflects aggregated industry practices. It's a cool tool to use. You mentioned diet. 
it was slimmed down quite a bit. Just recently, you were able to see a grower go through it. And that is, it has slimmed down quite a bit, right? Yes, the process used to take five to six hours to complete. And I just worked with a grower that completed it in an hour and a half from start to finish. So you can see for a time commitment from the grower, it's much quicker to get in and much more user friendly. And during this re-envisioning of the platform, we kind of looked at a, a number of things. One, the question count had grown quite a bit. We had 620 questions and we've trimmed it down to just over 300 questions. So just in the question count alone, you can move through it much more quickly. The other thing we did is we broke the structure up before it was a start to finish, go through all the questions. Now we've grouped questions. So when you set up an orchard, you never look at those questions again. You put the information in for that orchard, how it was planted, when it was planted, those kind of questions. And when you reassess in a couple, two, three years, if you reassess your practices, you never have to look at that again. Those questions are pre-done. And we did the same thing for the farming operation. So common practice is that you practice across a whole farming operation. You really only need to address those questions one time and then future assessments that are already completed for you. So those two things really help lighten the load. Yeah, definitely. You, you mentioned reassess. How often should growers be doing that? I know a lot of industry members have done this since it's come out over the last decade. And this is an important thing to keep up to date. So you're not way off of where you started from, right? Yes. And we recommend about every three years because really it's a continuous improvement program. If you think about it, we're really trying to see where we've learned new practices that we're starting to adopt in the orchards. Not many people change their practices every year, but over time, you're going to pick up a new thing. We're going to try this. We're going to change the way we do that practice. So we recommend every three years. There are handlers that work with growers. They like to see that data done every year because they're using the aggregate data to help demonstrate to their buyers what their group of growers are doing. So they have a different motivator and they'd like to get that data annually. But for us, we recommend every three years. So whether you've completed CASP or not, I highly encourage you to check out the new website. It's there you can set up an account, maybe recover an old account if you don't remember a password, or just learn more about the updates to the program. Just head over to almondstewardship.org for that. That's almondstewardship.org. Or you can find it at the almonds.com website in the upper ribbon under Almond Industry, then Stewardship Platform. Thanks to Tom and Taylor for providing today's ABC update. We at the Almond Journey podcast believe everyone in the almond industry has a story of their own of how they're making things work on their farms or in their jobs. Hearing the voices of industry leaders, people like Mackie Vilich, may have sparked a connection or an idea that you can use in your own journey. And that's why we want to feature these stories of innovation, resilience, and community here on this podcast. I hope you'll come along for the ride by subscribing to the show on your podcast platform of choice. And please pass it along to others in the industry so we can all share in this almond journey together. <laughs>